Let us start today with a lovely poetry reading from Baudelaire's epic 1857 collection Flor de Mal. I present Un Charon, a carcass. My love, do you recall the object we saw that fair, sweet summer morn at a turn in the path, a foul carcass on a gravel-strewn bed? Its legs raised in the air like a lustful woman, burning and dripping with poisons, displayed in a shameless, nonchalant way, its belly swollen with gases. The sun shone down upon that putrescence as if to roast it to a turn and to give back a hundredfold to great nature the elements she had combined. And the sky was watching that superb cadaver blossom like a flower, so frightful was the stench that you believed you'd faint away upon the grass. The blowflies were buzzing round that putrid belly, from which came forth black battalions of maggots which oozed out like a heavy liquid all along those living tatters. All this was descending and rising like a wave, or poured out with crackling sound. One would have said the body swollen with a vague breath lived by multiplication. And this would go forth singular music like running water or the wind, or the grain that winnowers with a rhythmic motion shake in their winnowing baskets. The forms disappeared and were no more than a dream, a sketch that slowly falls upon the forgotten canvas that the artist completes from memory alone. Crouched behind the boulders, an anxious dog watched us with angry eye, waiting for the moment to take back from the carcass the morsel he had left. And yet you will be like this corruption, like this horrible infection, star of my eyes, sunlight of my being, you, my angel, and my passion. Yes, thus will you be, queen of the graces, after the last sacraments, when you go beneath grass and luxuriant flowers to molder among the bones of the dead. Then, oh, my beauty, say to the worms who will devour you with kisses, that I have kept the form and the divine essence of my decomposed love. Spring is in the air, and that can only mean one thing. It's time to have that talk. You know, the talk. About what to expect when you're decomposing. On today's episode of the Bugs, Blood, and Bones podcast. Decomposition is a natural part of existence on this planet. Plants do it, fungi do it, fish do it, humans do it, we all do it. And under the right conditions, it can be fairly predictable, but there is of course variation. The amount of time it takes for a human body to decompose will vary given a number of factors. When it starts is fairly consistent, the actual stages experienced, their duration, and level of completeness can vary greatly. A person sitting lazily on their couch watching reruns of How I Met Your Mother finds they can no longer be awesome and instead has a heart attack. They'll begin their decomposition process after about 
after about four minutes post-death, but may not hit the stiffening stage known as rigor mortis for several hours, whereas that person's brother, who was out for a vigorous run and had a heart attack at the same time, they may start to go through rigor fairly quickly. So you have that four-minute spot where they begin, and then bam, they're in that stiffening up of rigor mortis. And that's due to the depletion of the ATP or the energy that was used in the cells to, to contract and release the muscles as the person was alive. That process was sped up because of the exercise. It was being used. Uh, and then they died from the heart attack. And all of that was depleted. Whereas the person who was just chilling and watching NPH do his thing, uh, that person didn't have that same expenditure and had a normal amount of ATP along with some other chemicals in the body. And they're going to have very different start and stop times for that rigor mortis. But as we'll see, all of this can vary greatly depending on the environment outside of that. Are they indoors? Are they outdoors? Are they in a shaded wooded area? Are they out in an open field? Is it the middle of summer? Is it the middle of winter? Is it Ohio? And it changes every five seconds and you never know to begin with. All of these things can have a very significant impact. As the process of decomposition begins, the cells in our body begin reacting to this new state of things. Once you die, I mean, you die. The heart stops beating, the brain stops functioning. You go through, you begin to go through a process called autolysis or self-digestion. The cells are being deprived of oxygen, carbon dioxide, the blood pH increases, wastes accumulate within the body. At the same time, we're seeing changes in the amount of enzymes and what they are doing in the body. The cells begin to dissolve from the inside out and eventually causing them to rupture. So all of the nutrient-rich fluids are released into the system. This is the beginning of the end of our body. And it may sound kind of horrible, but it doesn't look that way to the outside. This is all going on inside the body. In organs that are more high enzyme rich, like say the liver, you're going to see this process go more rapidly, as well as areas that have a high water content. So, you know, the brain. Now, this process of autolysis can take a couple days, depending on the ambient temperature. But once the body has become acclimated to the ambient temperature in which it is, we call that the algor mortis stage, uh, you may see some blisters on the skin or skin slippage where you'll get large sheets of skin that'll just slough off the body. That rigidity stage, the rigor mortis, begins and uh, you have the muscles having an increased level of acidity and of course that ATP has been depleted. And once we finally reach the stage where you have enough of those nutrient-rich fluids filling the body and processing all the stuff, you get the beautiful stage known as putrefaction. That's the lovely smelly stage that most of us think of when we think of decomposition. Putrefaction is the stage when we have all of the microorganisms just running amok. So the bacteria, the fungi, the protozoa, all of these things that were at one point kept under control by the internal processes of our body and external processes as well, uh, they are no longer kept in check. So they are just going to run amok and take over thing and putrefaction commences. 
We also have at this time the catabolism of tissues becoming turning into gases, liquids, or your more simple molecules. Usually the first sign of putrefaction, that's when we get this greenish discoloration of the skin. Uh, this is when you have blood that is settled. That settled blood turns sort of a greenish color, and this is due to the sulfa hemoglobin, sulfur-bound hemoglobin, hemoglobin being the normal blood molecule in our bodies. The process continues. You get distension of your tissues, your body. It just swells up with gases. So your hydrogen sulfide, your carbon dioxide, methane, ammonia, sulfur dioxide, and hydrogen, uh, and some others will just build up. This is really especially prominent in the bowels. So in your large and small intestine, your colon, etc. This process of anaerobic fermentation occurs primarily in the gut. And we see this release of rich volatile fatty acids, primarily butyric and propionic acids. You get gases and fluid accumulation, and you, then you get this purging, this just leakage out of the bowels. And so don't, don't feel nervous and, or concerned or uncomfortable if you're around a dead individual and they may fart. There may be a release of gas or something. It's not uncommon. During a research study I did a number of years ago, I had several pigs up in National Forest in Washington State, and two of them had such forceful buildup of these gases in the bowels that it caused the intestine to actually push through the side of the body. And as they're decomposing, you have this pig there, and then there's this big poofy distended section of intestine just kind of sticking out like a lovely little balloon or someone blew a nice bubble of gum and it was just sitting right there all pretty and perfect uh, and smelly. So this is very common. It can be just, it, it can be quite forceful to rip through the side of that body. All right, so you've got your gases that have been built up and then released. You've got the purging that's been going on. Now it's time for active decay to really begin. Your muscles, which are composed of your proteins, turn into their basic components, which are your amino acids. And those break down even further into more volatile fatty acids. And those will even break down further into phenolic compounds and glycerols. This is for all my chemistry nerds out there. In addition to that, you'll have a number of compounds. There are actually over 300 volatile organic compounds that have been identified and associated with the process of decomposition. Some of the more famous ones are, well, famous to, you know, people like me, your putrescine, your cadaverine, scatol. These things are very common, and these are what are released during the process of decomposition and are some of the components that attract insects to the decomposing corpse. And for my bacteriophiles out there, yes, we have both aerobic, oxygen-loving, and anaerobic, oxygen-not-so-happy-loving bacteria doing this whole thing. Also during this stage, you get the insect activity just really increases, and you'll also get the carnivores coming in and having a nibble. Now there's also a process called saponification. It's basically, well, Soap is in that name, sort of. It is the formation of soap from fat under certain high pH conditions. So what is soap? Uh, soap is primarily lipids. What is fat? Lipids. You, the, during the process of decomposition, you turn to soap. Not recommended 
for washing dishes. Just going to throw that out there. Saponification or adipocere, it typically begins after putrefaction has begun. And if you have warm, moist environments, uh, you'll see a yellow, white, sort of greasy like wax on on the individual. Um, and this is not just a human thing, you know, pigs, etc. So this is kind of a neat thing that you can kind of get an idea of what type of decomposition has begun. The consistency of the adipocere varies with the type of material that that it binds to as as the chemical reaction occurs. So a rapid decomposition would be indicated by sort of hard crumbly uh, sort of formation of that of that product and this occurs when it's bound with sodium generally found from the intestinal fluids but if it's a soft paste-like complex that is when you have it forming mostly with potassium this would be coming from the cell membranes and that would indicate a more slow rate of decay now this entire process can take quite a long time and it can vary as I've said a few times here with the environment and other events that are going on peri before ante at the time of or post mortem mummification would be one of the very end results of this decomposition process mummification we think of the word mummy and we might think of brendan fraser or boris karloff i will not think of that other film that was recently released so we have an idea of what a mummy is well that's not the same here uh though ancient Egyptians did attempt to mimic or speed up in an idealized sense the process of mummification. During the decomposition stages, mummification may or may not occur at the end, and that's typically going to occur if you have a very dry uh, environment during the process of decomposition. You'll get a sort of leathery skin or even parchment-like, and it will cling to the bone. I've seen a few uh, a few remains that you can kind of rattle around and hear the bones that are inside the the skin. The bones themselves, if you have complete or even partial skeletonization, the bones themselves will go through an additional process called diagenesis. This is a natural process of decomposition of the organic and inorganic components of the bone. So you're calcium, magnesium, apatite of the bone when they're exposed to the environment. Now, I've, I've kind of done my best to convey that there is no one set way that this happens. Historically, we've had this idea that there's the fresh and then the decay and then the dry stage, or they break it up more into active, bloat, decay, drying. We have different stages that people have come up with over the years. It, the problem is not every individual, as I've said, will go through that. Some may go through all, some get, may go through just one. Some you won't be able to tell at all because you won't get to them until they are fully skeletonized or under certain, cer certain circumstances where it just hasn't happened. And the presence of insects, other bacteria, and just the type of weather or time of year will influence this greatly. If someone, say, douses an individual in a ton of bug spray, that may slow or even completely deter the attraction of insects, which may prevent many of the components of decomposition from progressing. Uh, a, fun, a fun little story that I've come across a number of times, 
There was an apparent grave robbing at an old cemetery many years ago, and there's they found what looked like a very fresh corpse in the grave. It had clothing that didn't look current. It was odd, uh, and but the person still had what was described as red meat on his bones, and it looked like a very fresh, very recently deposited body. So we have a grave robbing and a fresh body. We don't know what this is. What's going on? Well, what ended up happening was this individual had been buried at the time. It was a Civil War soldier, uh, Colonel Shy, who had been buried in a lead coffin. The lead essentially sterilized the body. All of the lead seeped in, poisoning the inside and outside of this grave. So you couldn't get the normal decomposition from, of course, the insects. You couldn't get it from the bacteria and fungi that would have been present in and around the body because they were killed by the lead, this lovely, lovely lead. And you have what looks like a relatively fresh corpse because it couldn't go through the normal stages of autolysis. I find this absolutely fascinating and exciting uh, because that is me. So don't bury your loved ones in lead caskets, please. All right, so I've talked a lot about the chemistry that's going on to this process of decomposition. Now, I'm a bug lady. I love my little creepy crawlies. And insects, as I've hinted, are very important, if not essential, to the process of decomposition. The primary group that we look at as far as decomposition is concerned are the flies. The flies are of primary importance. They are the first to show up. I mean, like you die, bam, they're there in less than five. They know where to go. As mentioned in a previous episode, Sung Su in 12th century China recognized this with those flies that show up immediately are the Californidae. They are the green, blue, black blowflies, bottleflies is another another common name for them. But this family has been around and is fairly ubiquitous around the globe on every continent except Antarctica. And yes, there is a fly species on Antarctica. With over 150,000 different species of flies, one can imagine that this could get quite overwhelming. Thankfully, uh, not all of those flies are attracted to decomposing remains. That makes it a little bit easier. In addition to that, we have forensic entomologists or dipterists, scientists who study the diptera, diptera being the order that the flies are in. Uh, They specialize in the different species that may or may not colonize decomposing remains or at least are related to that. So they can take a look at a fly, they can get it under the scope, they can tell if it is a an acalypterate or a calypterate species. This is one of the first divergent things we look at for these two groups. Basically, the calypters are these weird little sort of fleshy things that are underneath the wings. Whether they have them or they don't, it's one of the biggest, easiest indicators of these two main groups of flies. And if that sounds too easy, don't worry, it gets far more tedious. You can either look for a suture on the antenna or no suture. You can look for a suture on the thorax or there's no suture. Maybe there's a line. Maybe there's a transverse suture or a vertical suture. All those fun things that thankfully you won't have to deal with, but those of us who love our little flies get to do all the time. I won't go into too much detail as far as the different species. I'll save that for another fun-filled episode. Uh, But suffice it to say, we have a number of flies that we can generally predict to see frequently, especially here in the United States. The 
Black Below Fly for Mia Regina, I have seen both in Washington State and Ohio. I've also seen it in Pennsylvania on decomposing remains. It's sort of a darker green, generally a darker green color, a little bit smaller, but you'll see uh, just behind its head it has these bright orange little circles. Those are its anterior or front facing spiracles and it has uh, orange hair which is one of the easiest ways to distinguish this little fly from others. It is found, this critter is found pretty much throughout the United States and parts of Canada as well. In addition to that, Lucilia sericata is one of the most common, if not just as equally ubiquitous species of flies. Califora vicina and my lovely favorite one, Califora vomitoria, because if you're going to name something, why not name it vomitoria, right? Now, as that process of active decay of putrefaction is occurring, the flies that Formia regina, the black blowfly, or your Lucilia sericata or vomitoria, uh, will come in. They will be attracted through the smells of those over 300 volatile organic compounds, some of which I described earlier, that are being released by the process of decay. They will find that, they'll just go, yeah, that's yummy and tasty. And those flies will come in and they'll think to themselves, you know, I'm not just hungry, I'm horny too. Because as we learned from entomology rule 34, insects like to go at it. So the flies have been brought in, they've been attracted by that decaying smell, they've found love or a quickie, and the female has laid her eggs on or near the mucous membrane, exposed mucous membranes of the body. So the eyes, the nose, in the ears. If there's a wound, they'll go after that. They'll also go after genitalia and the anus. These areas are just, the tissues are softer. The flies, uh, the larvae, once they hatch, can burrow inside and begin to eat and feast on the softer materials. Now, the flies won't lay their eggs directly on the eyeball or other squishy bits because that could end up being far too liquidy as it decomposes for the larvae. So the larvae could actually drown if it doesn't have anything to cling on to that's solid. It won't be able to eat and develop sturdy enough before it can actually process that Gooey, if gooey enough of a material. The number of eggs that are laid can vary, but generally a fly can lay a good couple hundred in the space of a couple days. And the process and the amount of time it takes for the egg to hatch, and then from that first instar, that first baby larvae, to go from instar one to instar two, and then from two to three, is consistent and can be measured if we know the temperature of the of the air around the individual of the individual themselves and also the maggot mass that will form and a maggot mass is exactly what it sounds like it is a mass of maggots they will bind together and they can actually regulate their own temperature because insects unlike humans uh, are unable to maintain an, a temperature on their own. They have to use the environment around them to regulate their body temperature. And if they get too cold, their body temperature and processes can slow. If they get too hot, it can slow as well and they can die. So they need a nice medium. So the fly larvae will form a mass and that mass will churn and move throughout the, the process, the area that they're eating and further the process of decomposition and they will actually it's kind of fun they will kind of move down in and they get too hot they get too hot to cut get too hot and then come back out and they release that 
temperature that he, they cool down as they're exposed to the air and they can then maybe move on to the next stage, uh, the next larval instar stage. Now once those fly larvae have gone through those three instars, so your flies will have the egg, three larval instar stages, they will then move away and form a pupa, which uh, some of you might think of as a cocoon. That's not really the right term. We like the word pupa, but go with it. So they form that pupa and they'll do that away from the body. They want to get away from the area where all of their little larval, larval little friends are and also to a nice safe place. They might burrow down into the soil. If they can't do that, you'll find the larvae will move away and they'll tuck themselves up into folds in the clothing or in other areas that are somewhat protected from the other larvae. And they're not just protecting themselves from larvae because that would be mostly silly, though there are some predatory species of flies that will lay their eggs and if they get hungry, they will eat the, the flies, that, the larvae that are uh, eating the dead person. So it's not just that hot temperature that they're trying to get away from. And that can be pretty hot. I clocked it at almost 45 degrees Celsius one time, and that's like 115 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's pretty hot. It's not just that hot temperature. They're also trying to avoid predators and parasitoids. Now, you might think predators, as I mentioned earlier, your large vertebrate carnivores coming in to chomp on the body. That's not what I'm talking about. The next big group of insects involved in decomposition are the beetles. And those beetles aren't coming in because they're attracted to the decomposing remains itself. They're actually coming in because they're attracted to the lovely tasty fly larvae that are feeding on the decomposing remains. So you'll get your staphylinid beetles, or your rove beetles, as most people uh, are familiar with them. Eventually you will get dermestids, hysterid beetles, and of course, the big group, the carrion beetles or your burying beetles are another subset of the carrion beetles. And they will come in, those adults will be eating the fly larvae and they'll also be taking a cue from what the adult flies are doing earlier. They'll be chomping down, but they'll also be mating and laying their eggs in or on the remains. So your burying beetles may take a chunk of the remains and lay an egg in or on it uh, and that will form the larvae and then that larvae will go through its process of development and that process of development will also include eating some of the fly larvae. Other predators that might come in are going to be your ants, spiders, and even yellow jackets. And while all of this lovely decomposition and activity is going on, you're going to see a number of other critters coming in that aren't necessarily involved with the process of decomposition or even predation on the flies themselves. What they're doing is coming in and eating some of the matter that's seeping into the soil. So you'll get some millipede activity. You'll see some little roly-poly isopods out there. You'll even see butterflies, maybe some moths, licking up the salts that are being released as part of the process of decomposition. I have a fun picture, and if you've gone to the Facebook page, you'll see it up there, that what looks like a bumblebee is actually a queen bumblebee that has emerged early on in the spring and is trying to get some well-needed nutrition so she can go off and start her colony. Not to be outdone, the parasitoids will come in and have a field day as well. And what these guys need is they need a host to complete their life cycle. There are some wasp species that will come in. She will mate, lay her eggs in the larvae of a fly. Well, that fly 
will continue its that or that larvae will continue its development process and it will eventually form a pupa that uh, as i said earlier you can use the word cocoon if you feel comfortable so it will form that cocoon of sorts and it will start the process of developing into an adult fly but those eggs that the wasp laid in the larvae are still there actually while the larvae the fly larvae was still a larvae the wasp larvae were starting their own little development process inside the fly larvae so the fly larvae is still alive makes its pupa it eventually dies not being able to complete its process of becoming an adult but the wasp larvae that were inside the fly larvae are then able to complete their process by devouring what was left of the fly larvae and then eventually fully develop they'll make their own pupae and then they will become adult wasps and emerge from the puparium that the fly larvae had created for itself i found a few of these one uh, at the end of one summer quite a number of them actually and i would get the the pupa under the scope and then you pop it open and inside are a bunch of little itty bitty little squiggly larvae it was adorable and sad all at the same time now this is only a very cursory examination of some of the groups that you see uh, colonizing decomposing remains and we could go on and on and on about the different species that come in what exactly they're doing what they're feeding on and how they affect the other species that are there but I have to go to bed and I have to edit a podcast before I do that so we'll save that for a future episode just keep in mind there are always new things to learn there are so many little critters that are out there and there this is only the tip of the iceberg and if you want to learn more i encourage you to stick around subscribe to this podcast and shoot me some questions i would love to hear from you and address something that you want to know more about that would be bugsbloodandbones at gmail.com come find me on facebook and uh, that's how this topic actually was suggested i had my initial idea for the day i need a little bit more time to get it finished because it requires some actual editing skills and i need to work on that so this became a hello facebook what would you like me to talk about today and thus the process of decomposition became your episode as always a very heartfelt thank you to the underscore orchestra for their amazing music that i'm using in this podcast definitely go check them out over on cd baby if you like what you hear please hit that five stars on the itunes or your favorite uh, podcasting app and leave me a review let me know what you like let some other people know what you like please feel free to share and uh, with that i'll see you in two weeks for a very special episode where we get to examine all the wonderful ways you can die horribly painfully and with blood gushing out of your nose and remember kids keep calm and carry in